Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and today I'll continue my conversation in my series on Edward Said's Orientalism. Now, if you watched my previous lecture, we had started talking about Chapter One, which is entitled "Scope of Orientalism" by Edward Said, and within that. Said stages this moment in British history where Balfour, Alfred Balfour, is speaking about Egypt and he goes in to describe as to what kind of vocabularies is he mobilizing. And then there is a conversation about Cromer, who was the main British administrator in Egypt, basically practically ran Egypt and also wrote a two-volume work on Egypt. Now today what I'm discussing is from middle of page 36 to somewhere bottom part of page 40. And most of these passages stay focused on Cromer. Part of what he says, but there are some long quotes from his published work, right? And all of that is establishing a few important things for Said's argument. What they're establishing establishing is as to why Cromer thinks the way he thinks about Egypt and the Orientals. What discourse underwrites it? What are his general opinions as a British administrator about it? And how does he describe the Orientals within his writing? Right? And then further argument, of course, is that whatever he describes or the way he sees the Orientals, there is a power dynamic at play there, but that it's not accidental. These can't even be construed as his own views because those views are informed by a deeper discourse of Orientalism. So as always, uh, since this is a project of reading Edward Said and then talking about it, I'll read a few passages, come back and talk about it, and then I'll read a few more passages and repeat the same process. I hope it's not too boring for you. Uh, but our interest here is to actually do justice to the book and to give it the time that it deserves. And, you know, for that it is important that we actually go and read the actual text. So here we go, the first set of readings, and then and I'll come back and talk about it. Unlike Balfour, whose thesis on Orientals pretended to objective universality, Cromer spoke about Orientals specifically as what he had ruled or had to deal with first in India then for the 25 years in Egypt, during which he emerged as the paramount consul general in England's empire. Balfour's Orientals are Cromer's subject races, which he made the topic of a long essay published in the Edinburgh Review in January 1908. Once again, knowledge of subject races or Orientals is what makes their management easy and profitable. Knowledge gives power. More power requires more knowledge, and so on in an increasingly profitable dialectic of information and control. Cromer's notion is 
that England's empire will not dissolve if such things as militarism and commercial egotism at home and free institutions in the colony, as opposed to British government according to the code of Christian morality, are kept in check. For if, according to Cromer, logic is something the existence of which the Oriental is disposed altogether to ignore, the proper method of ruling is not to impose ultra-scientific measures upon him or to force him bodily to accept logic. It is rather to understand his limitations and endeavor to find in the contentment of the subject race a more worthy, and it may be hoped, a stronger bond of union between the rulers and the ruled. Lurking everywhere behind the pacification of the subject race is imperial might, more effective for its refined understanding and infrequent use than for its soldiers, brutal tax gatherers, and incontinent force. In a word, the empire must be wise. It must temper its cupidity with selflessness and its impatience with flexible discipline. To be more explicit, what is meant when it is said that the commercial spirit should be under some control is this, that in dealing with Indians or Egyptians or Shiloks or Zulus, the first question is to consider what these people, who are all nationally speaking, more or less in statu populari, themselves think is best in their own interest, although this is a point which deserves serious consideration. But it is essential that each special issue should be decided mainly with reference to what, by the light of Western knowledge and experience tempered by local considerations, we cons consensuously think is the best for the subject race without re reference to any real or supposed advantage which may accrue to England as a nation, or, as is more frequently the case, to the special interests represented by some one or more influential classes of Englishmen. If the British nation as a whole persistently bears this principle in mind and insists sternly on its application, though we can never create a patriotism akin to that based on affinity of race or community of language, we may perhaps foster some sort of cosmopolitan allegiance grounded on the respect always accorded to superior talents and unselfish conduct, and on the gratitude derived both from favors conferred and from those to come. There may then at all events be some hope that the Egyptian will hesitate before he throws in his lot with any future Arabi. Even the Central African savage may eventually learn to chant a hymn in honor of Australia Redu, as represented by the British official who denies him gin but gives him justice. More than this, commerce will gain. Okay, so the passages that I just read from page 36 to 37, uh, Said makes a transition from his discussion of Balfour and focuses now primarily on Cromer's own view of the Orientals, right? So 
what Saeed is suggesting here is that what were Orientals as an abstract category with certain essentialized traits to, to Balfour are actually the subject races to Cromer because Cromer has actually ruled on them. So his view of these groups then is that of people who need to be governed, people who need to be administered, and people who need to be, of course, controlled. So that is where Cromer's understanding of these people, essentialized as it is, but informed by Orientalist discourses, becomes crucial. And the first citation that I read is from one of his articles, right, that he had published about governance in the colonies. And there are some things that we need to, like, first just understand what he means by it. So the term statue populari means in the state of tutelage, in the state of being pupils. So he's referring to these subject races as these groups of people who are in a state of tutelage, right? Then there is a ref reference of them finally, eventually, maybe singing Austeria Redu, which is a Dryden, John Dryden poem that he wrote in 1660s after Cromwell's death and after reinstitution of British monarchy under Charles II. So in a way, that is deeply connected to British nationalism. But overall, if you reread these passages, and I highly recommend it, the argument here is this is a profit-earning enterprise. There is no doubt about that. But how do we must present ourselves as their governors? So what Cromer is suggesting here is a move from dominance to hegemony. And what the British must do. They must mask or hide the actual project, right, which is profit-earning, extraction of resources. Now, remember, all of these enterprises, East India Company and all, are profit-earning enterprises. And you also know that those are associated with the kind of middle class which was considered very Philistine and not sophisticated. So what he is suggesting is that, no, the governance of these people, these people who are in the state of tutelage, if we want to be effective and have a perpetual empire, is first of all to involve their participation in it, but only after their expectations have been tampered by a European system of knowledge, after they have been trained into that. But more importantly, that we must create an illusion of inclusion. And two, the British must mask the capitalistic aspects of their venture and must offer their services and their governance as something that they are doing out of the goodness of their heart for the betterment of these people. Now, the people referred here are Indians, the Zulus, the Shilluks was were a tribe, a Nile tribe from Sudan, right? All of these people who at one time or the other were hostile to British interests and actually fought against them. So overall, how do you represent yourself? How do you make sure 
that the empire lasts longer is by changing its functionality from pure dominance to creating a sort of hegemony. And those of you who are not familiar with the distinction between the two, please watch my lecture on dominance and hegemony as Antonio Gramsci theorizes it. But that is what is at play here. And, and then create an aura where the locals feel like they are being consulted, but consult them only and give credence to their ideas only after they have been constantly instructed in the British mode of thinking and behaving. So relationship is the dominant group, which is the British Empire, and the subject races. And then to those subject races are assigned certain essentialist traits, right? That will become clear in the next reading that I will do. But this is some of what I think about these passages that I just read to you. So let's go and read a few more passages, and then we'll talk about them a little more. How much serious consideration the ruler ought to give proposal from the subject race was illustrated in Cromer's total opposition to Egyptian nationalism. Free native institution, the absence of foreign occupation, a self-sustaining national sovereignty. These unsurprisingly surprising demands were consistently rejected by Cromer, who asserted unambiguously that the real future of Egypt lies not in the direction of a narrow nationalism which will only embrace native Egyptians, but rather in that of an enlarged cosmopolitanism. Subject races did not have in them to know what was good for them. Most of them were Orientals, of whose characteristic Cromer was very knowledgeable since he had had experience with them both in India and Egypt. One of the convenient things about Orientals for Cromers was that managing them, although circumstances might differ slightly here and there, was almost everywhere nearly the same. This was, of course, because Orientals were almost everywhere nearly the same. At last, we approach the long-developing core of essential knowledge, knowledge both academic and practical, which Cromer and Balfour inherited from a century of modern Western Orientalism, knowledge about and knowledge of Orientals, their race, character, culture, history, traditions, society, and possibilities. This knowledge was effective. Cromer believed he had put it to use in governing Egypt. Moreover, it was tested and unchanging knowledge since Orientals, for all practical purposes, were a platonic essence, which any Orientalist or ruler of Orientals might examine, understand, and expose. Thus, in the 34th chapters of his two-volume work, Modern Egypt, the magisterial record of his experience and achievement, Cromer puts down a sort of personal canon of Orientalist wisdom. Sir Alfred Lyell once said to me, accuracy is abhorrent to the Oriental mind. Every Anglo-Indian should always remember that maxim. Want of accuracy, which easily degenerates into untruthfulness, is in fact the main characteristic of the Oriental mind. The European is a close reasoner. 
this state his statements of fact are devoid of any ambiguity he is a natural logician albeit he may not have studied logic he is by nature skeptical and requires proof before he can accept the truth of any proposition his trained intelligence works like a piece of mechanism the mind of the oriental on the other hand like his picturesque streets is eminently wanting in symmetry his reasoning is of the most slipshod description although the ancient arabs acquired a somewhat higher degree the science of dialectics their descendants are singularly deficient in the logical faculty they are often incapable of drawing the most obvious conclusions from any simple premises of which they may admit the truth endeavor to elicit a plain statement of facts from any ordinary egyptian his explanation will generally be lengthy and wanting in lucidity he will probably contradict himself half a dozen times before he has finished his story he will often break down under the mildest process of cross examination orientals or arabs are thereafter shown to be gullible devoid of energy and, ish, and initiative much given to fulsome flattery intrigue cunning and unkindness to animals orientals cannot walk on either a road or a pavement their discorded minds fail to understand what the clever europeans grasps immediately that roads and pavements are made for walking orientals are inveterate liars they are lethargic and suspicious and in everything oppose the clarity directness and nobility of the anglo-saxon race cromer makes no effort to conceal that orientals for him were always and only the human material he governed in british colonies as i am only a diplomat and an administrator whose proper study is also man but from the point of view of governing him cromer says i content myself with noting the fact that somehow or other the oriental generally acts speaks and thinks in a manner exactly opposite to the european cromer's descriptions are of course based partly on direct observation yet here and there he refers to orthodox orientalist authorities in particular ernest renan and constantine de volney to support his views to these authorities he also defers when it comes to explaining why orientals are the way they are he has no doubt that any knowledge of the oriental will confirm his views which to judge from his description of the egyptian breaking under cross, cross examination find the oriental to be guilty Okay so my impulse here is to continue reading because Said himself does a wonderful job of deciphering what Cromer is saying but what Said when he unpacks the first quote what he's trying to suggest is that there is no not even an inkling of that the natives themselves will have a say in their governance and the reason for that is that this dichotomous identity structure is being built right in which there are certain essential traits that are assigned to the natives and it's the job of the european masters to watch out for those but maybe eventually make these people more like the europeans right so that they are easy to govern 
right? But there is no hint here that the natives can or have the capability of knowing their own self-interest. They will know their own interest after they have been taught to know their self-interest. That's the argument. Now, the next long passage that he quotes that I just read is actually from Cromer's book, right? And if you look at that, every single negative stereotype, essentialist stereotype about Egyptians is mobilized over there, okay? They are selfish. They are irrational, right? Uh, they don't know how to behave against the modern infrastructure. There is an acknowledgment that the Arabs at some time were logical, but they are no longer so. So the juxtaposition is that the European, by his very nature, is, is logical, is rational, whereas the Oriental, by his or her very nature, is irrational, unorganized, has an enfeebled mind, and uh, is so weak that breaks down under any interrogation, lies all the time, prevaricates every single negative connotation that you can is assigned to the Orientals, but also essentialized. And against that is offered this stable self of Europe, which is an exact opposition to those stereotypes. That is what Said means and other post-colonialists mean when they argue that the creation of the Orient as an object of study or creation of the Orientals as an object of study was an absolute necessity for Europe to stabilize its own self, right? Because you are impugning onto this other constituency all the things that you consider terrible that are bad and essentializing them, against that then can be posited the idea of a noble, rational, logical European self, right? That's what he's arguing over there. But towards the end, after I finish the quote, what Said is also arguing, argue, arguing about is that, you know, Orientals are the subject race. They need to be governed, right? And in Cromer's view, that is the only view he has. His study of the Orientals, about whom he's writing these two volume is not a detached study. It's the study from the point of view of someone whose job it is, maybe he thinks it's natural, to govern them. But whatever he is saying about the Orientals in his own published work, what Said is then arguing is that if you lay bare its structural and discursive foundations, what you find out then is that even if he's been there, even, even if he has observed the Orient, Orientals, governed over them. His opinions are still informed by the major figures of the Orientalist discourse, the Orientalist knowledge-producing industry, right? Here is a guy who has run India, run Egypt, should have his own opinion, but he still defers to the opinions of the experts, right? And that is Said's point, that even for someone Okay, he has a racialized view of the Orient, or Orient, but the way he's describing the Orientals, the qualities that he's assigning them are not just from his own observation, but an outcome of a larger discourse which has its enunciating subjects, its scholars, its poets, and that 
Cromer actually refers to them and defers to them to sanctify his own opinion of the Orientals. And that's where, you know, um, his point of view of the Orientals. And then Said will go on to further explain it. I will go to the reading and then come back and talk about it a little more. Prime was that the Oriental was an Oriental, and it is an accurate sign of how commonly acceptable such a tautology was that it could be written without even an appeal to European logic or symmetry of mind. Thus, any deviation from what were considered the norms of Oriental behavior was believed to be unnatural. Cromer's last annual report from Egypt consequently proclaimed Egyptian nationalism to be an entirely novel idea and a plant of exotic rather than of indigenous growth. We would be wrong, I think, to underestimate the reservoir of accredited knowledge, the codes of Orientalist orthodoxy to which Cromer and Balfour refer everywhere in their writing and in their public policy. To say simply that Orientalism was a rationalization of colonial rule is to ignore the extent to which colonial rule was justified in advance by Orientalism rather than after the fact. Men have always divided the world up into regions having either real or imagined distinction from each other. The absolute demarcation between East and West, which Balfour and Cromer accept with such complacency, had been years, even centuries, in the making. There were, of course, innumerable, innumerable voyages of discovery. There were contacts through trade and war. But more than this, since the middle of the 18th century, there had been two principal elements in the relation between East and West. One was a growing systematic knowledge in Europe about the Orient. Knowledge reinforced by the colonial encounter as well as by the widespread interest in the alien and unusual exploited by the developing sciences of ethnology, comparative anatomy, philology, and history. Furthermore, to this systematic knowledge was added a sizable body of literature produced by novelists, poets, translators, and gifted travelers. The other feature of Oriental European relation was that Europe was always in a position of strength, not to say domination. There is no way of putting this euphemistically. True, the relationship of strong to weak would be disguised or mitigated as when Balfour acknowledges the greatness of Oriental civilizations, but the essential relationship on political, cultural, and even religious grounds was seen in the West, which is what concerns us here, to be one between a strong and a weak partner. So here we are. We have read this chapter from its beginning till page 40. It started with Balfour, who was a diplomat, a politician, and a British prime minister, and then goes into Lord Cromer's actions in Egypt, his writings, right? One is an Orientalist in the sense because he has internalized the Orientalist views of the Orients. The second is a British administrator 
who has held positions of power, right? And we are given excerpts from their texts by Said in a comparative manner. Now, as we go towards this concluding discussion of Cromer, right, there is one instructive passage here on page 39, I think, where Said is saying a really important thing which we ought to keep in mind. And he says, to say simply that Orientalism was a rationalization of colonial rule is to ignore the extent to which colonial rule was justified in advance. So the idea isn't that Orientalism was used to justify colonial rule. The idea is that the Orient is already constituted before these administrators go in there. So whatever views Cromer is presenting about the Orient, right, these views have already been formed through discourse. Two things that Said pinpoints do that. One, from 18th century onwards, because of the contact, because of the trade, this constant production of so-called scientific knowledge about the Orient plays a huge role in pre-constituting the Orient for the conquerors, for these administrators. And two, power, right? That the Euro Europeans had a dominant role. Not only could they study these territories and write about them and produce works of literature and research about them, they also had the power to define them and to govern them. And these two things, knowledge and power, then come together to build this ideological and discursive infrastructure which pre-constitutes the Orient for these people, that they think of Orient in these terms. And what he's also pointing out is that when you essentialize the Orientals, when you assign them all these capabilities, if they do something that doesn't match the stereotype, that is considered an aberration. Right? So, for example, Cromer's critique of uh, Egyptian nationalism and rise of Egyptian nationalism, he considers it, it an outside influence because somehow the natives shouldn't even be able to think of themselves as capable of fighting for their own freedom. Right? But the main point, what he's also pointing out, is that in these assumptions about the Orient, one thing that the Europeans themselves forget is that they are themselves claiming to be logical and scientific, but the claims that they are making sometimes are themselves irrational. After all, when you call millions of people as Egyptians or as Orientals and assign them immutable characteristics, that's a pretty unscientific thing to do. So. The, even the logical assumptions of European people, scholars, and people like Cromer itself breaks down when it comes to orientalizing the Orientals, right? And so by the end of this paragraph in today's discussion, what we have learned is we have gone through two people's accounts and their views about Orientals and about Egypt being the focus. We have learned that those views are predominantly negative and essentialized that the Orientals are a subject race, they need to be governed, that governance needs to move into an hegemonic order where the rapaciousness is hidden, that's what Cromer is suggesting, and that maybe they can be included in the governance but only after they have been taught how to think in 
patterns of the European modes of thinking, but underlying all this is the Orientalist discourse, which is produced by knowledge, scientific, literary, and other, and which is propped up by power and dominance of Europe. So this dichotomous relationship is what constitutes the grounds for the emergence and perpetuation of the discourse of Orientalism. And then to keep in mind his instructive sentence there that Orientalism is not a rationalization of colonial enterprises, but actually the discourse that predetermines it, that preconstitutes it, and underwrites it. These are all my views on this part of the book. We have now covered until page 40. I know it's going to be a tedious and long journey, but I hope it's going to be a rewarding journey. So stay with me and please uh, do post any questions that you might have about uh, today's talk or anything that I've covered before about Orientalism. I'll be happy to answer them. And uh, my request to you is always, as always when we do these kind of deep readings, is to not simply rely on what I have recorded, but to actually use it as an aid, but read the book along with me, right? Look up materials and see, you know, uh, I didn't have time here to go and actually read parts of Cromer's book or his article, but I encourage you to do so. And that way we all can learn new things, but can also do justice to this one of the greatest books of 20th century. All right, that's all I have. Thank you so much. If you have not subscribed to the channel, please do subscribe to the channel. And uh, that shows me that you support whatever little I'm doing on this channel. If you feel inclined to do so, you can also become a supporting member of this channel. Just click on the join link below and see what it says. And that gives you some other exclusive extras other than the general membership of the channel. I'm deeply grateful to all of you for your support and for the kind words that you put uh, in comment sections and it really encourages me to continue doing this thing. Thank you so much. Now I'll see you next time probably with another conversation about Saeed. Until then, take care of yourself and as always, peace and love.